0: It is a joy to be back with you, as Mike alluded to in his prayer. I have been gone for two weeks, uh, beginning my my PhD pursuit in the UK. It was a long two weeks, um, but it was a joy. Uh, it was interesting, both soul edifying and and a lot of work and a lot of reading of Greek and Reformation texts and all kinds of craziness, but it was also just a joy to be with brothers and sisters from around the globe, uh, either doing PhD or what they call an MTH, their master's studies there. I was with men and women, uh, church planting and pastoring in Northern Ireland, Wales, all throughout England, truly all over England, Lyon, France, Athens, Slovenia, I learned that that was a place and then met a pastor from there, uh, Poland, Western Australia, and all over even the city of London. It was a, a as edifying, just learning from those brothers and sisters as it was the courses themselves. So it was a joy, but it was also challenging. Two weeks is a long time to be away from my wife and kiddos. It's kind of lonely. Uh, you're in class just nonstop, but then in the evenings it's like back to your dorm by yourself to read stuff and it just got boring eventually. So what do you do? Me, uh, the nerd that I am, I went to a lot of churches. So morning and evening services on Sundays, midweek services. And so in the last two weeks, I've worshipped in two different Anglican churches, very different on the progressive and conservative scale, if you know what I mean. Uh, Evangelical Church of England, that was a fun one, a Welsh Presbyterian church, and an Evangelical Church of Wales. Uh, Wales is a dark place, so when I say evangelical church, don't be triggered by that. what that word means in the West. It's like gospel preaching, the, the few people that believe the gospel in, in Wales. But it, it, I I'll say all of that to say it's not the same. It wasn't the same being there. I missed my people. I missed our local church here, and so it's been fun to be back. Um, you may also think, if you've been around, that, Taylor, uh, you kind of look a little bit... Um, casual for your preaching today, you would also be correct because all of my clothing uh, is in my checked luggage bag, which is yet to return to Indianapolis. Um, so it is somewhere, I think, in Detroit, should be here by end of day today. Uh, I forgot to tell first service this, all of my sermon notes are also in that bag, um, and so this is a lot of work um, throwing this together from memory. Um just happens to be the most controversial passage in all of scripture, probably. So it was a great time. I don't mean to throw anybody under the bus, but the airline happened to start with a D and end with Elta. Um, so I'm a little upset with them still. <clears throat> so the kid, my kids were especially mad. I brought souvenirs, sweets. They call them sweets and souvenirs home. And I'm like, well, we waited at the little carousel for like 30 minutes before we started inquiring. And they're like, it's not here, never got here, never came and so my kids are mad last night. I've traveled for 22 hours straight. It was a disaster, but still good to be home and be with with my my family last night and to be with you this morning. So, um, we are looking at Revelation chapter 20. Um, I'll say from the outset here, the vast majority of our time is going to be spent in the the opening verses, verses 1 through 6, because that is the debated and and challenging interpretively a section of Scripture, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, which is commonly called the millennium passage, the thousand years. When is this? What is it? What's going on? Um, So let's do this. Let me just read the entirety of Revelation 20 here from the outset, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So as is our custom, could you stand for the reading of God's holy word from Revelation chapter 20? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer." where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, I came across this wonderful quote from Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton in his somewhat more famous book, Orthodoxy. Speaking of the book of Revelation, he has these words. He, He writes, I love this though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange creatures in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. He's saying there's all kinds of strange things in the book of Revelation, strange monsters and creatures, and we have these visions of beasts with multiple heads, but the strangest things that you'll find are not The monsters in the book of Revelation. It's the interpreters and commentators who write about Revelation. Those are the strange creatures. And uh, this has been true, especially of, of other passages that are more symbolic, like beasts and heads and crowns and so many eyes, or even the lamb slain in heaven, looking as though it had been slain. All kinds of visual imagery. But our passage today is no exception. It is a controversial one. It has truly divided denominations on where you stand on this. There's an entire interpretive school. We have uh, alluded to it or spoken explicitly to a whole camp of Christianity known as, known as dispensationalism that interprets all of Scripture truly through these six verses. Makes sense of everything else that has come before because of this passage. And I'll say from the outset, I'll try to say it again, the, this is what, what we would call maybe a second or a third circle issue. This is a secondary, tertiary issue. Um, Good men and women differ on these types of things, the details of the millennium. I have good brothers and sisters. I had professors that are going to disagree with what I say this morning, Um, but I think my view does the most justice to this text, and it aligns with the way this text has been interpreted throughout most of church history. Um, But nevertheless, all that to say, you could find some very strange creatures at a used bookstore if you went into the commentary section and looked up some things on Revelation. So, the other thing I want to tell you from the the outset here is that that, uh, big, bold, red text on on the upper right hand portion. As we're going to get into the details of this text, maybe more than usual even, down to words and phrases and um, kind of nerd out a little bit, I do want us to know that this is supposed to function in our lives. These Sections of the book of Revelation are meant to do something to cause us to worship, to grow us in our hope. And so if I had to summarize this morning, it would be that because Christ's finished work has bound Satan and secured our future, Christians can live with assurance and fearlessness. That's what I think this is supposed to do regardless of where you go with your interpretation of the millennium and the great white throne judgment and all of those things. Because of the work of Jesus in his cross and resurrection and ascension to the throne, he's bound Satan now. And in so doing, he's secured our future. Because of all of this, we Christians today can live with assurance because our future is secure. And we can live lives that are marked by fearlessness, fearlessness trust in the one who has defeated the enemy that's what this is to do in us okay as I mentioned we're going to spend most of our time on these first six verses and then a a few comments at the end of the chapter as we go to the table so let's jump right in to the millennium question verses one through six now these six verses contain two visions actually I don't know if you caught it as I was reading this. Look at verse 1 and then look at verse 4. Then I saw. Verse 4. Then I saw. Your translation might say, and I saw. Same word. It's just, it's all over the place in John. It is his literary technique to introduce a new vision. I'm going to tell you something. I saw this. It was wild. This happened and this happened. Okay. And then I saw another vision. And this happened and that happened and this happened. It's his way of marking out at the start of a new vision. That will be important in just a moment because I don't think then I saw. In English, it can communicate sequential. I ran and then I showered and then I went to work. Boom, 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 boom. Um, That's not what John is doing here with, with this phrase. And so... We have the first vision, which is one through three, verses one through three, describe for us a detained dragon, and then new vision, verses four through six, picture for us what we might call triumphant saints or exalted saints, those who have died in Christ and they go be with Jesus in heaven. They they go to Christ. And I'll play my cards here from the outset. I think both of these visions are describing right now. Since Jesus' work on the cross, his incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, and his work, Good Friday, the cross, and Easter Sunday that we celebrate, that was his work. Between that time and his second coming, which is yet future, we often call it the church age, is what we're looking at this morning. The millennium, the thousand years, is the church age. The time between the two advents of Christ. And then verses 4 through 6 tell us what happens to those in Christ when we die. Our bodies go into the ground, but our souls, who we are, goes to Christ in what we think of as heaven. More on that in a few minutes. But this is common. We've seen it over and over again in John, where he describes events of human history, present events, and, and things that mark all of our lives, all of the church age. And then he'll wrap it up and say, and l- then I saw this. And he'll retell the same story from a different lens, a different angle. It is a common prophetic and apocalyptic literary technique called, do I remember? Roger introduced it to us a number of weeks ago. Recapitulation. It would be like the movies, if you've ever seen a movie that like describes an event. Let's say it's a car crash uh, from the point of view of those who are driving it. And then it zooms out and retells the same thing from a construction worker nearby. And then the next scene tells the, the same events from a different person's perspective. That's recapitulation. And John has done it over and over and over again. And unfortunately, commentators see this and agree with what I'm saying. But then when they come to chapter 20, they're like, oh, oh now it's all, now it's all consequential and ordered in history. So... Again, as a reminder before we get into this text and, and why I, I share with you what I think is going on here, this text has been used to argue about the millennium. When is it? You might have heard of phrases, real nerd theological phrases, pre-millennialism, pre-the millennium. Christ returns pre-the millennium and then things happen, an earthly millennial reign, on earth, it is yet future, Jesus on earth, we in our glorified bodies, unbelievers not in glory, they're just in their regular bodies and usually in the Middle East if you're in a dispensational circle. Um, I, I, I don't think we should get hung up on where we land in terms of the millennium because the text itself is going to give us internal markers as to how we are to think about this. The point being, as I mentioned in that red statement, the enemy has lost. Jesus has won. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you have won because you are in Christ. You cannot be defeated. You cannot be lost. You are untouchable because Christ has conquered. It doesn't always mean an easy life. It doesn't mean free of suffering. No, no, no. It means we're united to the one that won. So the first vision of verses 1 through 3. The detained dragon, this is the debate. Look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottom, this pit, and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So, when does that happen? You may have recalled Roger preached last Sunday, the concluding section of Revelation 19. It's this beautiful passage of Jesus' triumphant return where he is pictured as being on a white horse and coming with the armies of heaven, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who who wipes away the false prophet and the beast. Um, So does this Jesus return in chapter 19 to the earth? And then this binding of Satan starts some sort of thousand years on earth after his return. Or, as I'm going to argue, is this another way John is saying, Okay, I've wrapped up that vision. Jesus has returned, he's crushed the enemy, thrown the false prophet and the beast into the lake of fire. He wins, he rules. Now pause. Then I saw this other vision. Check this out. Angel came down and, and then he's re picturing all of history through another lens. I think it's that. And I think there are some built-in clues to help us interpret this. One, I don't think chapter 20 simply follows chapter 19 chronologically. As I mentioned, then I saw, or and I saw, is a way to clue us as readers in, this is a new vision. Not necessarily that this happened after what I just explained. You'd get into some really strange interpretations if that's the case, because you have Christ returning multiple times throughout the seven cycles that we've seen. Um, so what I'm saying is, then I saw, or and I saw, does not equal sequential events in history. Instead, this is recapitulation. This is right now. But there's more evidence for this. One, oh, that was one. Two, secondly, verse 2 introduces us to the antagonist. Who is this? The dragon. That ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. You might remember this. It's not the first time we've seen this. It's the exact title given to the dragon, to the devil, in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 speaks of, of this great dragon being thrown down. That great dragon, who is, uh, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The same title. And what was Revelation 12 about? It was about the birth of Christ. It was about his incarnation and his defeat of the dragon. And the defeat of the dragon in Revelation 12 was that he can't accuse you anymore. The accusations against you because of your sin no longer stick because Jesus has atoned for you, died for you. And so the picture in Revelation 12 is the dragon being thrown down to the earth, defeated. You've lost but he's still enraged and works against us. Friends, Revelation 20 is saying the same thing, but using a different metaphor, a different image. Rather than cast down language, he's using binding language. Because of Jesus, the dragon, that ancient serpent, remember the one I've talked about throughout the book of Revelation, has been bound. He's been limited. He's been defeated because of Jesus' death, as our substitute in his glorious resurrection and his ascension to the throne. Darkness is lost. Also, woven throughout this section is all kinds of symbolic language. First, the thousand years. Entire camps, again, uh, interpret this literally, and it's yet future. It's an earthly millennium. Usually, like I said, somewhere in in the Middle East. Uh, But again, if you've been reading Revelation, we haven't seen a literal number yet. Numbers in the book of Revelation are packed with symbolism and and imagery. They mean something that's actually beyond the number itself. It's not like whatever's going on here cannot be 1,001 day or or 999 days or or whatever. It's it's the 1,000 years, what is called the millennium, is a long, determined, complete period of time. It's a long and determined complete period of time, the entire time between Jesus' two advents, Christmas and second coming. And it's speaking of the same period of time as the seven seals in chapter 6 and 7, the same period of time as the seven trumpets, the same period of time as the seven bowls, namely this present age. The church age, the time between the resurrection of Christ and his return that is yet future, is the millennium. Um, Another thing to look at. Look at the language around the dragon's binding. The dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it, and sealed it over him. Again, it sounds reminiscent of some things you've probably heard if you've been reading the New Testament. This devil character, the enemy of God's people, the dragon is thrown down, cast out, bound. You're like, man, all those sound familiar. You would be a good Bible reader because this language is used of the devil, all in connection with Jesus' work on the cross and in his resurrection. Even before that, let me start with the Synoptic Gospels. Those are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often held together and called the Synoptic Gospels. And each of those, the work of Jesus as he's going through Galilee and healing people and casting out demons and raising the dead and and feeding people, doing all of his miracles, he's challenged and says, do you see what, what is going on? All of my miracles and healings and casting out of demons is the binding of the enemy. The same phrase. Even in Jesus' earthly ministry, as he's going to the cross to die for us, and before he's even resurrected, he is binding his enemy. Let's look at the language of Luke chapter 10. He sends out, Jesus sends out his 72 disciples, right? We often think of the 12. There's a larger group of disciples. He sends them out throughout the towns to heal and to preach the gospel and to heal the sick and do miracles, and they come back rejoicing. They are pumped. Lord, even demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. See what's going on? Jesus is sending out his his vice regents to carry on his mission throughout Galilee and throughout Jerusalem. And as they do, the devil is losing. He's being cast down. Revelation 20 language. Or, this is a new one, uh, John chapter 12. Same John as Revelation. All throughout the first 11 chapters of John, you have Jesus doing miracles. And he's like, "Be, be quiet, my time has not yet come. Even the first miracle, at the wedding in Cana, he tells his mom, woman, my time's not yet come. Um, it's a nice woman. It's not a, not a bad woman. Uh, but that's another story. Uh, my time's not yet come. 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 John chapter 12, Jesus says, now, my time has come. Do you know what he says? In the same breath, when he's announcing to his disciples, the time has come, John 12 Verses 30 and 32. Jesus answered, Now is the judgment of this world. Because now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When? The next sentence. When I am lifted up from the earth and draw all people to myself. When Jesus is lifted up to hang on a tree. I would, I would include his work of resurrection and glorious ascension in that. As a package deal, one work of Jesus, he is casting out the dragon. Last one, the Apostle Paul makes clear for us that in that same event, Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, God made us alive together with Christ. Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Don't stop there, though. That's the personal application. Your sins put on Jesus and nailed there. You're now righteous because you're given his righteousness. But what's the next phrase? He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Rulers and powers, principalities and powers are Paul's way in the New Testament letters to talk about demonic things. The dragon and his people, invisible or visible, were disarmed in the work of Jesus. At the cross and resurrection, Jesus triumphed over the devil So looking at all four of the Gospels, looking at a survey of Paul's letters, and now coming to the apocalyptic book of Revelation, it's all over the place. Jesus disarmed, defeated, bound, cast down, threw out, threw down the dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The Scriptures speak of our enemies, the the dragon his downfall occurring at the cross and the empty tomb, which we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks. Jesus has overcome darkness. He has defeated the enemy of God and God's people. He's reversed the curses of the fall, made atonement for sin, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus has won. The dragon is bound and chained, hence the cover of the sermon insert of a chain. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, I'm, I, I see the connections, I see the repeated phrases, this does make sense, but the seizing and the, the binding of the dragon seems pretty complete, and it doesn't feel like the devil is bound today, right? You might even be thinking that, how I thought it. This is all, I, I, this makes sense to me literarily, I think this is what's going on here, I think this is the best reading of Revelation, but... How do I square with this? It still seems pretty, pretty wicked. The devil seems pretty active. <clears throat> Look at verse 3. I would surmise that most of our problems with this are reading things into the binding that aren't there. We are told what the binding of satan is in verse 3 what does it mean that he is bound verse 3 <clears throat> thrown into the pit shut it sealed it over him purpose statement so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the 1000 years were ended read it again real quick while i cough and t- take a drink What does it mean for the the dragon to be bound? It means that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. It doesn't mean that he's not present, that he's absent, that he can't do anything. That's not what the text is doing. That's us reading things in to what it means to be bound. The point is that he's lost When Jesus breathed his last, making peace between God and man through his death as our substitute, and when he burst forth from the tomb, starting new creation, the dragon lost. He was bound so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. Here here it is, here it is. The, The binding of Satan is his being limited from stopping the gospel spreading. That's what it means in the text. We're told. If we need proof, look at the person next to you. We are the nations. Salvation started with a Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his band of followers and has taken over the globe. The nation's are believing, have believed, and will believe. The devil is bound in that he can't stop the gospel from going forth like he could before Jesus. Before the coming of Jesus, there's a very small remnant we get the sense of, a very small remnant of, of believers in the Old Testament scriptures. Why? The devil, the dragon's not bound. He's the ruler of the world. Subruler. But you get what I'm saying? That's the language that he's used, that is used of him. In Jesus, he is now limited in what he can do. The good news of Jesus is going to the four corners of the earth. And the dragon can't stop it. That's what it means that he is bound. And so We do here at New City pray for the unreached people group of the day because there are entire people groups who have yet to hear about the good news of Jesus. And we believe that Christ, as he tells us in Revelation 5, has purchased people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And that there are people in those people groups that will believe when the gospel reaches them. We we pray for those people groups. But don't let that give you the the insight that the dragon's winning and the gospel's losing. Friends, there are more Christians today than there ever have been in human history. Let me say it in another maybe more stark way that might scare you. The world is brighter today than ever before. Well, Taylor, it's... it's, uh, 20th century, most bloody century in all the world. I know, I get that. Because the world's still full of sinners, but the world has more Christians alive now than ever before. It feels especially dark probably to us in the West because we don't have eyes to see what the gospel is doing in Africa, Central and Eastern Asia, Latin America. And I think we've gotten sideways because of that. Satan can no longer accuse you of your sin, Revelation 12 tells us, and that Satan cannot stop the spread of the good news of Jesus. That's what Revelation 20 is talking about. That is the binding of Satan, and it's right now. You're the proof. Oh, dear. So, these verses uh, are are, are not, like I said, intended to give us some sort of debate about the millennium, but they're supposed to function in our lives. Because of the, the things that I've been saying... Because of of these things, we've been told Satan cannot win. The dragon's lost. And that's supposed to do something to your heart. It did something to my heart as I was preparing for this. On the first sermon that I wrote that is still in Detroit, Um, and I'm hoping to try to do now, darkness will not last, friend. It cannot. The the gospel even turns death now, not into the end, but through a, a doorway through which we walk. The dragon is defeated. The gospel cannot be stopped. Christ will build his church. Now, verses 4 through 6. So that's, that's a wrap. Binding of Satan, all of the church age. Boom. Then I saw this. <clears throat> and what's going to happen is John's now going to talk about the same period of time between the incarnation of Jesus and his return that is yet future. What now happens when Christians die in Christ? He's going to speak of it as the first resurrection or coming to life and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. This is a heaven scene, as we often think of heaven. This is in heaven. Your loved ones and your story is burial, physical, yes, but you will come to life and reign with Christ in heaven right now. Your loved ones who have died in Christ, new city members who have died in Christ, are reigning with Christ right now in heaven. But from the outset, we need to remember that that's not how they will always be. We're going to talk about it in that way because that's what the text does. But chapters 21 and 22, which we're yet to study in Revelation, are what happens when the souls in heaven are then re-embodied resurrected bodies, not just resurrected souls, but resurrected bodies in a new heavens and new earth. But that's the next couple weeks. So, verses 4 through 6, exalted, triumphant, whatever phrase you want to use, saints in heaven. Look at verse 4. Again, there's reasons for my believing this. Then I saw thrones. Circle that word. That is a, a word, John is is accustomed to using. He's used it a lot in Revelation. And almost every time, the thrones are in heaven. They're in the presence of God in heaven. And so that's where, again, the the careful reader's like, okay, then I saw thrones. Oh, we're in heaven on this one. And then John goes on to say, I saw what? I saw thrones seated on them were those uh, given the authority to judge. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. He's seeing souls, thrones, heaven. What happens when Christians in Christ die? They reign with Christ in heaven. Eternity starting in heaven. Yes, it's not how they will be forever. We have a a bodily resurrection and a new earth coming. But, oh, it is a good thing. Uh, It speaks of martyrs. uh, those being beheaded, I think that's an especially encouraging thing for first century Christians, being beheaded for, for Christ. But it's not just limited to martyrs. Like, only martyrs go to heaven, and the rest of us kind of soul sleep until the millennium. No, because of verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one. It's those who share in the first resurrection. I think it's, it's all of those who die as Christians. Friends, we go to heaven And then when Christ does return, we're with him on his horse when he comes back. New heavens, new earth. We get bodies and we live forever with no more tears, suffering, cancer, pain, loneliness, any more. This is called the first resurrection. And it says, over such the second death has no power. The second death is used again at the end of the chapter. It's where death and Hades go. It's called the lake of fire. This is, verse 14, the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he or she thrown into the lake of fire. So verse 5 is a a parenthetical statement. Some English translations even put it in parentheses, like don't get lost here. This This is talking about, oh, heaven. Christians go to heaven when they die. But just so you know, the rest of those... There's a, they're, they're, they will experience the second death. Hold that thought. We're going to get there when we see the great white throne. My point being that the book of Revelation, John, calls certain people earth dwellers. I wish the ESV said that. It's those of the earth, <laughs> earth dwellers. It, it's those who have taken the mark of the beast, those who have given their allegiance to something, anything else other than Christ. They, like Demas, one of Paul's friends, they loved the world. It's these ones who will experience a second death the lake of fire. So, to review verses 1 through 3, picture the binding of Satan that happened at the cross, resurrection, and ascension, and the focus is on earth. Now, the nations are in view as the gospel spreads. The dragon can no longer deceive the nations. And then, boom, another vision, four through six, is in heaven, picturing the present reign of Christians with Christ in heaven when they die. They're raised to spiritual life in Christ, in heaven, as they await their bodily resurrection that is yet future, and the focus is heaven. I'm out of breath. We good? I think that does the most justice to the internal evidence in the text itself, the rest of the canon of Scripture, and the historical way of understanding it. Meaning that I do not believe that this is speaking of a yet future, earthly thousand years on earth after Christ returns, but before the great white throne judgment and before the resurrection. Okay, So, Oh, dear. <laughs> Verses 7 through 10, we're, uh, we're, we're going to jump over it. It's, it's the same, again, it's John's way of speaking about an event that he's already talked about. I would encourage you to listen to the sermon last Sunday. Roger preached on Revelation 19, Jesus' return and final battle against the false prophet and beast. Those are the two that are in view there. 7 through 10 of 20 is the same event, the same battle using apocalyptic language from Ezekiel 38 and 39, but the dragon himself is front and center, as defeated and put in the lake of fire. They're not different things. It's the same battle told, recapitulation, through different lenses. But after that return of Jesus, there is something to come. And that's my third and final point where I'll take us to the table this morning. Verses 11 through 15. The great white throne of judgment. This is what the author of Hebrews tries to get at in chapter 9 verse 27 of Hebrews. I think it's on your insert. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. It's appointed for man, woman, to die once after that comes the judgment. The point is that we are in the millennial period now. Christ will return Revelation 19 and Chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Defeat the devil, the false prophet, and the beast, and death itself into the lake of fire, and judgment on all who have ever lived, believer and unbeliever alike, before the new heavens and the new earth. Judgment Day, we often call it. There's two books. Look at verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small. That's just Paul, uh, uh, John's way of saying, everybody's there, great and small. The earth gave up those who were in them. Death and Hades gave up those who were within them. Everyone is there. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, that's everyone, was judged by what was written in the books. Look at this. This is, causes caused me to uh, be a little squeamish and maybe bothers you a little bit. According to to what they had done. Judgment includes what we have done. Said, not said, loved, not loved, actions, thoughts. Now, again, I want to disarm us a little bit here because you're thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this like, are we we saved by our works? You know, we are in a Protestant tradition. We are uh, in the vein of the Reformers. We do not believe that we are justified, that is, made righteous, declared right with God because of our works. Our works do not contribute to being made right with God. But that doesn't mean, and here's our mistake, that doesn't mean that our works have nothing to do with our life. Our works, good, bad, ugly. Our thoughts, good, bad, ugly. Our affections for Christ, not for Christ, will be included and incorporated on Judgment Day. Judgment, according to works, is not the same as justification by works. We are made right, justified, by grace alone, received like this, through faith alone. Declared righteous because we're united to Jesus. Everything that he has is given to us. It's all by grace. But when you see that and when you know that Savior, when you know Christ, your life looks different. You speak in holy manners and live lives that are marked by likeness, Not perfection. I think there's a danger if, if we kind of like grade ourself and our spiritual behavior on an hour-by-hour hour moment, we're going to be all over the map. Like, yay, I'm a Christian. Oh, no, I got mad at my kids. I'm not even a believer. Ooh. The point going on here, when the, when the scriptures talk about growth and Christ-likeness, is can you look at your life over years and decades and say, Jesus has gotten sweeter I've entrusted myself to Jesus, and there are marks in my life that say so. There are marks, signposts. They're like, yeah, this is is a regenerate one. This This is a Christian one. Those works come out on the day of judgment. That's what's going on here. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther said it this way. We are indeed saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Saving faith, friends, bears fruit, not perfection, but fruit. We were looking for a presence of Jesus in our lives, not just a mere profession. That's what's going on here. And again, remember, these words are meant to encourage the early church. This is supposed to be good news, so don't think, like, in some circles, they speak of Judgment Day, like, Christians in Christ will get there, and it's like, Taylor, your turn. And, like, all of heaven is there. And every sin I've ever committed is put on a projector, as if those are used in heaven, and they just project every sinful thought and deed I've ever had. See, hey, you guys see this? This guy got in here. On this date, he said this, and he did that, and he spoke this way. And every sin showcased through heaven. I don't think that's what's going on. The point is that we're all going to stand before God, and our works matter. Our works are evidence. That we knew Jesus all along. That's all that's going on here. A quote from a professor at the seminary I went to. His name's Dustin Benj. I didn't share this with the first service, I'm almost done. He says There is a 0.0296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There is a 0.0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. There is a 100% chance you and your child will stand before Jesus. What are you teaching them? I'll just leave it at that. There's another book, and this is going to lead us to the communion table. It's called the Book of Life. I like this one, and this is is great because it's not the first time we've seen this book. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we've got the beasts and all the chaos of of those uh, glorious chapters, but then we're told, hey, there's a book, it's called the Book of Life, of the Lamb who was slain, and everyone written in this book is eternally secure and will never go toward the beast, but remain in Christ. Do you, do you see? Let me lay it this way. We've had these books, that, and written in these books are the works and the affections and the deeds of everyone who's ever lived. But there's another book, the book of life, which will be opened on judgment day, and in that book, there are not works written inside, but names, people, and faces. And if your name is in that book, You do not experience the fires and flames and judgment of hell. You experience new life and resurrected life on the the things standing standing behind you in our banners. God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes because he's making all things new and death shall be no more, neither mourning nor crying nor pain anymore because the former things have passed away. Friends, if you are a Christian here today, your name is in that book. And God did that. We're told that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He sent his only begotten son who took on flesh the Lord Jesus to die as our substitute. Friend, he pursued you And he granted you new life through the Spirit. I contributed. You contributed nothing to your salvation except your sin that damned you. But Jesus said, I'll step in. I will take that. I will make you mine. If you're in Christ today, God made it so. Judgment Day can then be celebrated as a making of all things right, not as something to be feared. Because the punishment's already been dealt with. Your name, brother or sister, is written in the book of life, and that is ink that cannot be erased. (coughs) Or as the old hymn writers used to say, (coughs) that is indelible ink. Permanent grace. Because of what Jesus has done for us. So friends, we can now live life, life today marked with assurance and confidence and fearlessness because of what Jesus did back then on the cross and in his resurrection. And we can live lives now, marked by assurance and fearlessness as we look to that day yet future, because there is nothing but blessing and goodness awaiting us. And in the time between that until we get there, we have ordinary means of grace ordinary ways to remind ourselves of this and to believe it more it's preaching it's reading it's prayer it is the lord's table we are going to be encouraged and reminded of what jesus has done for us back then in the bread and wine and we're going to be reminded of where we're headed a marriage supper of the lamb we are secure until then so friends i invite you if you are a christian and you've entrusted yourself to, to jesus You've received him, and you're resting in him alone for salvation. You are invited to the table. Come and be encouraged. If that is not you, just wait. It's not abnormal for people to remain seated. If they're still investigating the claims of Jesus or not sure where they stand with him, uh, just be comfortable. Stay seated. That's fine. The way we do it here at New City, you'll exit from the outside.